Good morning, brothers and sisters. All hail the power of Jesus' name. What a great hymn. That is why we are here this morning to hail the power of Jesus' name, to proclaim each and every one of us our call to be proclaimers of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to spend some time in Isaiah 58. What a remarkable chapter. If you would turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 58. Let me pray for us this morning, just briefly. It's more so for me than for you guys. Father, help me to have your soundness of mind, your boldness, your power. Paul constantly prayed for boldness. And even as John prayed, I pray that boldness will issue forth from this pulpit so that your word will go forth. And I pray that your word will go into the ears and the hearts and the minds and begin working. Father, water your word this morning. As your word is proclaimed, allow those who hear, including myself, to begin to plant the seed and the seed to take root and that roots to grow into a life-giving, flourishing, revivaled plant. Help us to be renewed, Father, this morning by the power of your grace and mercy that is poured out for us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen. What I want to talk to you this morning is about this. We can get worship right while getting worship all wrong. In case you're not awake yet, let me say that again. We can get worship right while getting worship all wrong. What do I mean by that? We can perfect the form of worship while failing in the spirit of worship. We can perfectly execute the hour and a half or hour of our worship service while entirely missing the call of Christ to live a life of worship. We can mold and shape the outward form of worship while entirely neglecting the internal soul of worship. In other words, we can become zealous for the form of worship while completely missing out on the reasons, the motivation, and purposes for true worship. And when this happens, our lives become disconnected. So what takes place on Sunday morning becomes disconnected from what takes place on Monday morning. Our Sundays become disconnected from our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays. We end up limiting our spiritual act of worship to an hour and a half, a few hours on a weekend, instead of living a life of complete and total surrender, which is the call of Scripture. See, God doesn't call us to worship Him for an hour and a half a week. As followers of Christ, our call to worship is 24-7, 365. So worship is not just what takes place now, this morning on Sunday. Worship is what also takes place throughout the rest of the week. So worship is not an event. It is a lifestyle. Worship is a lifestyle. And this is what the Israelites got wrong. Fasting and worship, no matter how perfect in form, must be marked by a lifestyle of love to God and love to others. That is how worship, true worship, 
biblical worship expresses itself. Before we go further, let me say this. This passage specifically is focused on fasting, but I want to broaden it for us. This is about fasting, but it's about worship more generally. So the Israelites were fasting in what they thought was true and right fasting. And we'll see they fail to understand what true worship and true fasting is. So just for this time, when we talk about fasting, keep in mind that this is an aspect of worship. It is a subset of worship. So we are talking about all of worship this morning. As we look at Isaiah 58, 1 through 14, I want us to see that truly worshipful life is a life that not only worships God 24-7, 365, but it's a life that is marked by love. A worshipful life is a loving life. To love God and to love others. To that end, I want to focus on three things today. First, we're going to look at the nature of true, or I'm sorry, the nature of false fasting. The nature of false fasting, verses 1 to 5. So what does false worship actually look like? And then the second point, consider what true fasting looks like. What does true worship look like? What are, what are the marks of the spiritual life in verses 6 to 7? And then lastly, verses 8 to 14, the third point, we're going to discover the fruit of fasting. A worshipful life bears fruit. So what are the results of biblical fasting? In short, this morning, this is what I want us to focus on. To be truly worshipful, our lives to be truly worshipful must be marked by love to God and love to others. In other words, a worshipful life is a loving life. Let's begin verses 1 through 5. What is the nature of false fasting? Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I chose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? See, Isaiah 58 begins with the Lord telling Isaiah to call out the sin of the people. And this isn't just, you know, a, a calm, dispassionate discourse. This is calling out, crying aloud. Do not hold back. Actually speak as if lives matter. This is passionate and this is public. Call out sin loudly and publicly. 
See, we often have this idea, we limit the, the prophets. We think prophets are there just to foretell the future. But if you actually look at Scripture, the main responsibility of prophets is actually to call out sin and call people to repentance. Yes, there's a future element to it, but the main purpose of all prophets is to call God's people back to Himself. Calling out sin, calling to repentance. So what is the specific sin Isaiah calls out here? And it's, this is, look at verse 2. I find this remarkable. Verse 2 says that the people actually seek the Lord daily. And they delight to know the Lord's ways. This doesn't really sound like sin, does it? They certainly appear to have things right. Their spiritual lives seem to be together. They're said to seek the Lord daily. They delight to know His ways. They even delight to draw near to Him. How bad is that? That's what we should be doing, right? They seem to be loving the Lord. So even the people are confused. Look at verse 3. Why, O Lord, do not see our fasts? We've humbled ourselves. And you've not even noticed? Basically, Lord, look at our services. We're doing everything right. Look at our worship. We even got social distancing enacted. We're all wearing our masks. We're here singing. We got everything perfect. What's wrong? They are perfect. Looking at their lives, they seek after daily. They read our Bible every day. They pray regularly. What's wrong with that? Have you ever wondered why God doesn't hear our prayers? Or doesn't answer them the way we like? You're a faithful church member. You're always at worship no matter what. Pandemics, who cares? I'm here. If the church doors are open, you are there. You've always been. That's been your life. You read your Bible. You pray regularly. But God seems distant. God seems removed. What's the problem with this? Isn't this how we as God's followers are supposed to live? We're supposed to be here. Now, there are various reasons why the Lord does not seem to answer our prayer. So we need to be careful here. Sometimes it may be because God is testing us. Other times it may be because the time is not right. But I do think we need to consider this. Sometimes it might be because our church life doesn't line up with the rest of our life. Our church life is disconnected from the rest of our life. Maybe, just maybe, it's because we're hypocrites. Maybe we're living a life of hypocrisy. This was the problem with God's people in Isaiah 58. One of the greatest sins a follower of Christ can commit is the sin of hypocrisy. This happens when our life does not line up with our confession, with what we say does not line up with what we do. Our words do not fit with our actions. Not only is such a hypocritical life detrimental to the church, I mean, again, what is the chief characteristic? Whenever you say, hey, would you like to come to my church or let me tell you about Jesus? Ah, oh, they're a bunch of hypocrites. I don't feel like dealing with that. That's the chief thing that people, unbelievers, say. But you know what? Hypocritical life is actually far more detrimental to the church than to any unbeliever. It's living the life of a lie. And the lies, lies destroy lives. 
lies destroy lives. They're destructive for all. So the Lord uses Isaiah to call out his people, his people who are worshiping him. And he calls them back to true worship. He calls them to repentance. Look at the last part of verse 3. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress your workers. The problem is not the form of their fasting. The problem is their motivation towards fasting. They're fasting selfishly. So much so that they're actually oppressing others in their fasting. Verse 4 is clear. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. If you live a life of outward worship and your inward heart and worship and love towards God and others is disconnected, then God will not hear. This is a problem of a lack of love. So you can be here on Sunday prepared and worshipful, but yet God is not hearing your prayers because tomorrow morning your habit is to move far from God. This is not worship. Jesus tells us that fasting is to be done in such a way that no one knows you're fasting to the Lord. But here we see an incredibly different picture. They fast for selfish gain. Their fasting actually leads to oppression of others. They, their fasting starts fistfights and quarrels. How? I can't even imagine how that's possible. But they're starting fistfights in their fasting. Jesus says, they honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. And the people of Israel are frustrated because the Lord seems indifferent to them. Lord, we're fasting. Lord, we're worshiping. Lord, we're doing what you command. We delight to know your ways. And why are you ignoring us? Why are you neglecting us? Why are you forsaking us? Amos paints a picture very similar to this. He says in chapter 5, the Lord says through Amos, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In short, the Lord hates the formula of worship divorced from a life of worship. God hates worship that is not loving. He finds no delight in the best worship services that are removed from a life of humility and justice. Take away the noise of your songs. He will not accept your sacrifices. What does the Lord demand? Let justice roll down. Let righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream, the Lord demands humility and justice, not worship divorce from the rest of life. The Lord despises loveless worship. Even though Israel outwardly was fulfilling all the requirements of worship. They were failing inwardly to carry out the true spirit of worship. When they fasted, it was for selfish reasons. And actually, they oppressed others. Verse 4 says they started fights. I like how one commentator says, 
this type of worship has no currency in heaven. The Lord looks at it and says, I'm not even going to take your worship. I'm not going to listen to it. It falls flat. It offers nothing but emptiness to the Lord. Instead of a sweet aroma issuing forth of worship, it becomes a repulsive stench before the Lord. Isaiah chapter 1 is very similar. Your incense is an abomination to me, the Lord says. I cannot endure your solemn assemblies. My soul hates your feasts. I am weary of them. When you pray, I will hide my face from you. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourself. Remove evil from your midst. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the oppressed. In other words, what Isaiah is saying is that true worship is expressed in loving God and loving one another. That is what true worship looks like. So, more particularly, true fasting or true worship in verses 6 to 7. Our second point. Look at verse 6. Is not this fast that I choose to loose the bonds of the wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? If this, the Lord says, is the nature of true fasting, then let me ask you this question. Those two verses, verses 6-7, to does it sound anything like what we do Sunday morning? Do verses 6 and 7 sound anything like what we do on Sunday morning? Now let me be clear. In no way am I here to minimize the importance of gathered worship. There are some churches that actually say we need to no longer worship on Sundays, but we need to be out and about in the community. I think they're going too far. I think they're wrong. Sunday morning is essential. Gathering of God's people is essential. It is, in some respects, the, the foundation, the bedrock of our Christian lives. But what I'm saying here is that can't be the only thing. It's the foundation, but the rest of our lives, Monday through Saturday, is the structure that we build upon. So don't abandon Sunday worship, but actually learn to love throughout the rest of the week. So what is clear from this passage is that all of life is a life of worship. It's not 166 and a half hours it's 168. We, we take that hour and a half of Sunday morning and divorce it from the rest of life. That 166 and a half, those remaining hours of the week, that is also our time of worship. That is our sanctuary as well as here. Worship is not confined to these walls, is what the prophet Isaiah says. It's not confined to Sunday morning. So with that, what is your worship look like there was a cartoon actually it was a cart it was a picture i remember in, in an old church i used to go to when i was a kid and it said uh, had a it was a picture of a guy in the middle of a high, highway with cars surrounding him and his car had broken down he's there lifting the hood and it says when does your worship end 
Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, our worship does not end. When you walk out these doors, you do not just go to worship. You are worshiping, and as you walk out those doors, you continue to worship. So let me ask you again, what does your Monday look like? What does your Tuesday look like, your Wednesday, and the rest of the week? See, true fasting, true worship is marked by two prominent features. The pursuit of humility and the pursuit of justice. In other words, to love God and to love others. First, we see the importance of humility in the first five verses. Fasting is not selfish. True worship is service and sacrifice. True worship is dependence. True worship is humility. True worship is submitting to the Lord of heaven and earth. It is humbling ourselves before Him. True worship is pursuing the Lord our God. It is loving Him with our entire being. So Jesus himself says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Why? Because for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, James says. In other words, true worship is expressed in love to God. But second part of worship, there, we don't, we, there is a second part. It is true worshipers pursue justice. Look at verse 6. What is this fast that the Lord desires? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. This is nothing more than to decry injustice. Where injustice remains, we act in love, but we're also to pursue justice. We share bread with the hungry. We bring the homeless into our homes. And half the church just checked out right there. And we clothe the naked. True worship expresses itself in love for others. A mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ is one who pursues justice. Who doesn't just quote Micah 6.8, but actually lives out Micah 6.8. Their lives are marked by doing justice, by loving kindness and walking humbly with God. Their lives are marked by loving one another. See, true worship, true fasting is not depriving oneself of food, but actually seeking to provide food to those who are hungry. There's nothing wrong with how we traditionally understand fasting. Go ahead and fast, but we must not fast for selfish reasons. The Lord would rather our fasting and our worship be focused outwardly towards others. The Israelites' worship had turned in on themselves. They were selfish. It was entirely focused on them. God says true biblical worship looks upward and it looks outward. It looks up to God and pursues His glory and it looks outward to others pursuing their good. See, there's a danger if we separate humility from justice. There's a danger if we separate love to God from love to others. You cannot live a humble life without pursuing true biblical justice. While at the same time, you cannot pursue justice rightly without living in humility. They go together. They must not be separated. Our love for God must never be separated from our love towards our brothers and sisters. Our love towards others must never be separated from our love to God. Look at it this way. We tend to, our worship is external, outward, and we also worship internally or, extra, in, or inwardly. 
We must never separate those two elements. As one commentator says, worship expresses a love for God which is so deep that it must overflow in our treatment of others, especially those weaker than we. In other words, our internal inward relationship with God, our life of loving God must overflow externally, outwardly into a love towards others. That love to God that glorifies Him must overflow as a love to others for their good. So true biblical worship is loving God which then overflows from our hearts to love the world. That is the nature of true fasting, of true worship. So the third thing, there are fruits of fasting. True worship bears fruit. Look at verses 8 to 14. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your mist, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then you shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruin shall be rebuilt. You shall rise, raise up the foundation of many generations you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord." And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, from the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There's a fascinating if-then, if-then, if-then in this passage. If you worship truly, then there will be fruit. If you love, there will be fruit. If you worship, if you pursue humility, if you pursue justice, then you will receive fruit from the Lord. So, four fruits of biblical worship. First, there's the fruit of the Lord's salvation. Look at verse 8. Light breaks forth like dawn. Healing springs up speedily. Spiritual healing which leads to righteousness. This, This renewed life, this rebirth, this regeneration, this salvation, our salvation brings healing to us spiritual healing to ourselves, righteous living. The fruit of salvation is righteous lives. The fruit of the Lord's salvation is humility and justice. The fruit of loving the Lord our God is loving one another. Those who are redeemed by Christ in the cross are those who do good works. Christ's love, brothers and sisters, compels us to love one another. The love of God produces fruit in us to love one another. 
Secondly, there's a fruit of the Lord's presence. Remember back in verse 3? The people were frustrated by the Lord's lack of presence, his seeming indifference. It was because of their hypocritical worship. They found no comfort because the Lord was far from them. But the Lord here promises His presence to His people who truly worship Him. In verse 9, I will be your rear guard. When you call, I will answer. When you cry out, the Lord our God says, Here I am. The Lord hears those who worship Him by loving Him and loving others. Those who pour themselves out for the hungry, who satisfy the desires of the afflicted. In other words, the fruit of a life lived in humility and justice receives the fruit of the Lord's presence. Third, there's the fruit of the Lord's renewal. Look at verses 11 to 12. The Lord promises to guide His people into rest and renewal if they worship Him. He will satisfy even in the midst of scorched places. He will make weary bones strong. We will be watered like gardens that are watered. We will grow up. We will produce fruit. The ancient ruins that were once toppled and destroyed will be rebuilt. This is a picture of spiritual renewal, of revival, of comfort. And this is promised to all who live a life of worship with humility and justice marked by loving God and loving others. The last fruit is this, the fruit of the Lord's rest. The Lord doesn't just temporarily renew us, but He makes us lie down in streams, in peaceful streams. The Lord promises us the fruit of rest. The Lord gives us a day of rest today, a Sabbath to call a delight, but even more so, He promises us a future day of rest, an eternal day of rest for all the weary, all the heavy laden, all the broken, all the tired will find rest in the Lord and will call that Sabbath day a delight. But even more so, our delight will not just be in the Sabbath rest, but in the Lord of rest. He will be our pleasure. He will be our delight. He will be our satisfaction, our comfort, and our joy. See, brothers and sisters, true worship leads us to rest. And when we enter into rest, there we find true delight in the Lord our God. The Lord is calling us, His people, to a life of worship. Jesus isn't just go calling us to go to church for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. See, following Jesus is an entire way of life, a lifestyle. Our worship must be marked 24-7, 365 by pursuing God and loving others by humility and justice. This is what true worship looks like. This is worship that honors the Lord. This is worship that the Lord listens to. This is worship that bears fruit. This is a worshipful life that is also a loving life, a life that will find its ultimate delight in the Lord our God when He gives us rest. Father, help us, we pray. Help us to know where we have failed to worship You. And we all have. We have all failed to worship you as we should. But yet, even as we come to the table, help us to come repentant, to come to the table to find forgiveness, to find you there, risen from the cross, freeing us to life, to love you as we should, 
and to love others as we should. Help us, we pray, to love you, to worship you, and to live a life of worship that truly is a life of love to you and to others. Help us this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.